Hello again, welcome back to Bear Books, the podcast hosted by yours truly, April Berry and Daisy Ray. We're all about appreciating indie authors. We have interviews and reviews, writing and reading you flash fiction stories. And best of all, getting authors noticed by their readers. And talking of getting authors noticed by their readers, this week we are both reviewing exactly what it is we are currently reading or have just finished reading. April has just finished hers and she has read Return to Kirin and I am 50% through reading Ending Samsara. So we are going to bring you reviews on both of those. Can't wait to do that because we have really enjoyed both of these books this week. So let's crack on. I do like these episodes where we just talk about whatever it is we're reading or have just read tell me what you're reading in the hopes that I'm going to love it and want to read it myself. I don't know whether you will or not. Um, I mean, I picked it because it's a bit of nostalgia. So the book that I've been reading this week is called Return to Kirin, and it's written by Neil and Susie Howlett. Now, for those of us that are of a certain age, I think you'll most probably remember that Kirin Island and Kirin was all in the famous five books. So I've gone for a bit of nostalgia. I will start by saying that I do think you need to be of a certain age to really appreciate this book. Luckily, I am of that age. You kind of need to know the famous five for this book to have the same impact on you. I mean, you can read it as a standalone, but I think that that you would lose something in the reading. The main characters, Julian, Dick, George and Anne, but unfortunately mine is Timmy, are all grown up and dogs don't live that long unfortunately however George isn't without a dog his name's Gary she's also acquired a son as well along the way the characters do reminisce a bit which makes me think that the authors are avid Eni Blyton fans or have done an awful lot of research um, it really took me back to when I was sort of 11 year old and I couldn't wait weekly to go and get the next famous five book One thing that I did pull out of this was that it was easy to see how the characters have evolved into the adults that they are. So if you look back to the characters of Julie and Dick, George and Anne when they were younger, you can see how their characters have kind of evolved. Um, Julian always had a sense of self-importance as a child and kind of nothing's really changed as an adult. He's driven by money and success. He's actually quite ruthless to a point because as an adult, he's rode roughshod over George's feelings about his development of Kirin Island. George had always been promised the ownership of the island by her parents, but circumstances meant this never happened, and it now belongs to Julian. And I'm going to read you a little bit of the book that shows you just exactly how George hasn't changed, and it's about what Julian's doing to Kirin Island. If we look at Dick, he's now Sergeant Richard Kirin. His life as an adult appears to be in the doldrums. He did shine in the original books in places, and the same does happen here. But he is a little bit of a plodder. He thinks that that everything's kind of sort of left him behind. And he, he, he feels that his life's a little bit woeful. Anne is now married with twins. She's turned into, in my opinion, a germaphobe, wrapping her children in cotton wool. So she's not the person who used to spread a blanket out on the ground and you know, eat the picnic in the open air. She's now all sort of anti-back wipes and everything's pristine. I'm going to leave my review of George for a little bit later. 
As with the original books, they find themselves embroiled in a mystery, resulting in the four of them getting arrested and spending some time at Her Majesty's Pleasure, which was quite amazing and quite amusing. The book is hilarious in parts. Uncle Quentin eventually comes to the rescue. Obviously, Uncle Quentin is George's father, the mad scientist from the original Famous Five books, and he hasn't changed. He's still a mad scientist. I really enjoyed the trip down memory lane. I would recommend it for Enid Blyton aficionados. It's well written. It's got good continuity, and it's been really well edited. I really enjoyed it. It gave me a bit of a trip down memory lane. Now, back to George. The only character, I think, in the whole book that hasn't really changed much is George. Because as a child, her traits haven't changed. They've just developed and had more exacerbated, I would say. She's still stubborn. She's still outspoken. She still has a temper. And I want to read you this little bit that kind of shows what's happened. They were all on the island and Julian has done up the castle. And he unveiled it to George and George was absolutely mortified at what he'd done to the castle ruins and what and how he'd changed it. She just really, really couldn't believe it. And so what she did is she stormed off. So at that moment, rushing away from them all, she had wished for just two things. The first was Timmy. Dear old Tim, who would have lolloped along beside her and pushed his head smoothly into her hand. There wasn't anyone close who understood her the way Tim had. Not even close. Not Gary. The second thing she had wished for was her old rowing boat. A strong bout of vigorous rowing had always helped to calm her when she was at her most troubled, and her boat had been her key to escape so often. Well, she couldn't have that either. It had probably been dealt with by now, taken for some decorative purpose for tourists to gape at or just disposed of. That was when she had reached the little beach on her island and kicked around in the piles of stinking seaweed in a tumble of misery, sending the flies up. And that was when she had found it, its flaking red-painted wood hidden under the rotting heaps, but miraculously still whole. Her heart had beaten faster as searching under the tangled fronds she had uncovered the oars and slipped her hand around the smooth, well-worn ends. Sometimes good things happen. George soaked herself thoughtfully, looking at her sturdy body. It was not as strong and capable as it had been, and she had never bothered to take up jogging like half the world seemed to be doing, but her navigation through the rocks had been perfect, and she had enjoyed the fierce physical exercise. Her arms would be stiff later, but what did she care? Miraculously, Gary hadn't been sick, though he had cowered quite pathetically in the bottom of the old rowing boat. Not like Tim. Tim would have sat up excitedly and barked at the gulls in the waves. Still, here she was at Kirin Key, under her own steam, and ready to get away from her exasperating family for a while. She ducked her head under the water and rinsed the shampoo away, then climbed out onto the mat and sat for a minute on the side of the bath, rubbing her hair dry. What she needed right now was a good drink and the company of some genuine Kirin people. As a child, George had not been allowed in the Kirin arms. Quite apart from the law, it had always been full of people you were told you wouldn't want to meet. Also, her mother had always said, gypsies and smugglers. George had supposed at the time, or perhaps just ordinary people who didn't own farms and islands and do scientific things in secret, 
They sounded to George just like the kind of people she had always seemed to get entangled with in the school holidays. True, Julian had ponced up the guest rooms and there was a smart dining room theatrically called the Smuggler's Bar, where visitors from outside of the village were firmly directed, but he hadn't yet done up the public bar. This was doubtless on the agenda, but the locals were resisting and Julian was holding fire for now. George pulled on some dry clothes. It was early evening now, and after all that stuff about her island, she wanted some real working-class company, sons and daughters of the proletariat. She made her way downstairs and went outside to check on Gary, who was dozing noisily. He'd do where he was for a while yet. She remembered the working men and women who had people curing during her childhood. They always seemed to find time away from their chores to spend hours talking to the children and telling them tales. Some of them might still be here. So I kind of picked that up because I think that that really just shows that George hasn't actually changed at all. She's anchoring after Timmy, the boat. She's still got a hot-headed temper. Um, She's still quite precious over the island. She's not happy that Julian's done it up, that he's poncing up the pub as well. All the things that she sort of enjoyed and reminisced about as a child, you know, and really enjoyed are all sort of being taken away from her, even though she does now live in London with a son and a dog. I'm quite pleased that my favourite character hasn't changed and they've kept George true to George from the old days. I think that's nice. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I noticed is about sort of Julian and one of, and the book does go into the fact that when he was when he was younger he was you know he always wanted to be called Master Julian and he always thought he was better than everybody else and I suppose in a way really he hasn't changed I suppose a bit of a a time at Her Majesty's pleasure might make him think a little bit differently but uh, and and Uncle Quinton that that kind of made me laugh because obviously he was always doing something and if you remember back to some of the famous five books. I can't remember which one it was where he was he was actually being blackmailed into doing something he didn't want to do. But now he's doing some scientific experiments for the government. But as you read through the book, you realise that actually these scientific experiments, what he finds and what he discovers is not really. He doesn't really think it's what the government should be doing. And so he actually does blackmail the government himself. Wow. When I was a kid... The famous five were perfect for the age I was when I was reading them. Yeah. So is the same true today with the updated version? Is it for adults? What is the demographic, do you think, for these books? It is It is for adults. And you've got to think that this, it's been set in 1979, which I think is quite apt because they're, fo- they're grown up 40-somethings. Mrs Thatcher's just become Prime Minister Ford Capri's rule the road, of which Dick has got one of them. So he, he's a Ford Capri driver. Anne's heavily into Tupperware, which was for the, the era. Tupperware. I know, <laughs> Tupperware. Tupperware and anti-back wipes. She's well into that. Yes, it's a grown-up book. One of the characters that's still in the book is, is Joe. Do you remember Joe, who was a bit of a ragamuffin, who tagged around after Dick all the time and thought Dick was amazing. Do you remember that? Do you know how many years it's been since I've read The Famous Five? Well, it's to, well. you've got to remember, um, do you remember, in, in was it about 2012 I bought them all and read them all again? I'd love to do that, but would it spoil it for me because they were, they're written for 
young children, they're not written for adults. Will I not get the benefit if I tried to reread them now? Well, I did. I did get the benefit. And it kind of jogged my memory a little bit because I remember Jo being a ragamuffin and George hated her because she was a bit of a tomboy like George. And she thought that Dick was absolutely amazing. Well, Jo makes an appearance in this book as well. Oh, Jo's a girl? Yeah, Jo's a girl. Okay. But she actually makes an appearance in this book, and I don't really want to spoil it for anybody, but it's quite a nice, happy ending. Oh, they generally were, though, weren't they? Yeah, they were. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. You need to have read at least a couple of the famous five books by Enid Blyton to be able to steep yourself into the nostalgia that is Return to Kirin. Weren't they kind of like latchkey kids back in the day, the famous five? They just went off and had their adventures with no adult supervision whatsoever. Well, they went on caravan holidays and, you know, and just went off. I mean, I can't ever, I'm, I, I, can, I can't really remember sort of being able to say to my mum at 11 year old, oh, by the way, can be in another bunch of 11 year olds, you know, just hook up a horse-drawn caravan and go on holiday <laughs> for a fortnight. Thanks ever so much. I'll see you later. And I think I'm reminiscing rightly. I would be so jealous. And they just went off, the four of them, with the dog. And it just seemed to be, oh, well, the dog's there. That's absolutely fine. He'll look after them, you know. Yeah, because that's how that works. Because, yeah, because that's how that works. But that was the... And it was that real naivety, I think, and that simplicity. Yeah. And and what, what kind of got me for this return to Kirin is that there was still a little bit of that naivety there. Yeah, they, were, they all ended up getting arrested and banged up in prison. For an in actual the, in stretch the book, or... In the book. No, no, no. I mean, it all becomes really clear when Uncle Quentin becomes involved. Mind you, you can't give me too much information. No, otherwise I can't. I need to read it. No. But it was, it was, it really was quite, yeah, I, I really liked it. It was, it was a bit of nostalgia. I mean, I know that there has other things been written, you know, sort of parodies about the famous five. There's loads of stuff there's, out there's there. There's loads of, loads and loads of stuff out there. And I remember when they tried to turn the famous five into a TV programme and I was a little bit dubious and I wasn't that keen on it, to be honest. Well, that was just a piss take. Wasn't yeah. that like French and Saunders and that gang? It, they did, Didn't they do they, a version no, they, of Yeah, they did a version of that. But there was also a proper children's thing it used to come on at about quarter past five. Oh, right, that was okay. the famous five, and and I wasn't that keen on it. I'm not overly keen when people just rip apart books that I've loved and make yeah. them into TV programs because the characters are never the characters that were in my head when I was reading it. All the scenarios and all the nuances and all the fineries that are in amongst the actual words that are written and all the subtext, and I love so much about reading a book and all the extra stuff it's not just who did what when and along a timeline yeah it's why they did it what they were feeling the friendships the insecurity it was all of the other stuff that you can't see in an actual story that yeah. you can read into the subtext or the subplot of a book so i'm um, very very seldom will i like a film or a series that's made from a book that i'm yeah. in love with yeah I've just kind of, kind of sort of found a, a little bit of, of thing of something online, and I'm just going to read it out to you. And this kind of sums it up. So it's set in 1979. The Kirins are now grown up 40-somethings. Mrs Thatcher has just become Prime Minister and four Capris rule the road. Smooth, successful entrepreneur Julian has big plans for Kirin Island, but needs to convince Dick, Anne and George. Not an easy job. George is as fierce and independent as ever, despite her teenage son, 
Her dog, Gary, is not at all like dear Timmy. Hannah's a perfect marriage and rather unusual twins. And Dick is still seeking success and the love of a good woman. There will be temper tantrums, awkward children and mysterious lights at sea. But serious danger and all political secrets threaten the cousins and the island. Touching, humorous and affectionate, this novel will delight anyone who wonders how their favourite characters might have grown up and coped in a changing world. Can adults ever really dip their toes into childhood rock pools? Which is what you were saying. Yeah, yeah, that is kind of what I was saying. Yeah, well, I think that you made an excellent choice. Yes. For one. I love the reading that you did. And I like the fact that your review has actually made me want to read the book. Good. Are there more than one of them? No, this is the only one there is. Is it? Yeah. Mind you, how many would they want to do, really? Well, that's Knowing that's how it. they grew up, it is the thing, isn't it? Once you know that, yeah, you can't rewrite them as adults. No, I, th- I think this was the, the, perfect, the perfect setting for the four of them. Um, what does make me laugh is right at the very, very end is that Gary the dog stays with Ratcliffe, who is George's son, and George gets a puppy called Jimmy. George is called her son Ratcliffe. Yeah. Okay. And when I did a bit of digging on the on the uh, the website, you know the the well of loneliness, Ratcliffe Hall. That's who she named her son after. Okay. Seemed quite strange to me on a personal level, just because a friend of a friend is called Ratcliffe, and he's got the fastest Jamaican accent I've ever heard, and I have to listen intently to understand a single word he ever says to me. So it just seemed really strange that she's called her son Ratcliffe to me. I'm glad you're going to read it. It's well worth a, it's well worth a read. Well, it's worth it. Firstly, based on your review. Secondly, I like the reading. And thirdly, I was such an avid fan as a child that curiosity is yeah. the overriding reason to pick I, that up and have a read. I do recommend it. Excellent. Thank you so much. So, okay then, Daisy, what have you been reading then this week for your indie review? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I am mid-read of Ending Samsara by J.W. Voice, and it's not very often that I find a book that's pace matches my lazy style of reading so well and still manages to keep me invested. So I'm very much engaged right now at just over halfway through this book. How significantly can you affect another person's life without ever meeting them? Good question. And it's the overriding question that is asked and answered throughout this book. As all the characters live their lives unaware of each other's existence, despite the fact that they do indeed impact each other's lives to varying degrees, good or bad, I'm not telling you. You'll have to read it yourself to know. But those of us that believe in fate... How much of that is, in fact, in the hands of complete strangers? The world is much smaller than we think it is. So what exactly is the good stuff here? Well, the six main characters are written well enough for me to believe in them. A dose of realism with enough excitement to keep me keen. I like that we aren't just guided along the story with who is doing what and when. We get to know the characters on a personal level. I feel like if I were to meet Marcus, for example, one of the characters, I'd know him enough to have a comfortable conversation with him. I also like that at halfway through, 
I can make some assumptions on what might happen next, but I don't actually know, which is how life is really. So I can't wait to read the second half. But before I do, let me read you a little bit of Marcus so you can get a feel for how real he's written. This is from chapter 10. Marcus ended the call, fighting a fierce impulse to vomit. It took him several minutes to overcome the trembling in his legs. Although his heart rate had resumed its normal pace, his stomach remained unsettled as he reread the article on his phone. The man wasn't lying. Frantically, he'd started to gather stuffed bags of his belongings, running outside with them through the back door of the house. He had no time to defend his behaviour to Matilda. She just stood by the door watching him pass her, seemingly waiting for an explanation. Come on, I said we have to go now. You said tomorrow, I... Just pack up all your shit right now. If you don't need it, leave it. I want to be out of here in less than an hour. An hour? No, I can't. Tilde, this isn't up for debate. I don't have time to go into it right now. Just get moving. Matilda looked like she was about to argue. Please. She threw her hands in the air and started sorting small items into a pile. Thankfully, Marcus had already managed the difficult part in the early hours. The produce and equipment was all safely on board. He'd stored all of the prepackaged items in the underfloor compartment and set up his chosen plants with the UV lamps in the upper deck. Tens of thousands of pounds worth of illegal horticulture, all methodically packed away. He'd loaded bin bags, backpacks, duffel bags, holdalls, just about every type of carrier he had at his disposal was filled to the brim. His newly purchased, but by no means new, motorhome was parked at the back of his property, blocking at least three of the shabby graffiti-covered carriages. It took him eight or nine trips, but he thought he'd gathered everything, his life for the foreseeable future, all crammed into the 32 by 8 foot space. As Marcus ran outside with the last of his personal gear, Tilde was slowly organising a suitcase. When he returned, she was motionless at the back door with the case still open in front of her. Come on, Marcus snapped. What are you doing? I just don't see why we have to go right this second. We've been safe nearly two weeks now. No one has tried to break in. We're not even sure that they know where we live. You're right, Tilde. Those men, the ones that want to kill me, I can't be certain they do know where we live. He pointed towards the front of the house and I have no proof that that van outside has anything to do with them. He ignored Tilt's clear intention to speak up, but now, as it turns out, we have another person to add to our growing list of enemies. He paused, then raised his voice slightly, and this guy knows exactly how to find us. Matilda frowned. Who? So unless you want to wait around, he said, even louder, to find out what his plan is, I suggest you stop questioning me and pack your goddamn case like I've been asking you. Marcus glanced at his wristwatch. You have 15 minutes. He hated being so short with her. It felt like reprimanding an infant for mild disobedience. Is there no way you could come back and get me tomorrow? Marcus ran his hand down his face. He groaned, but it came out more of a growl. What are you saying now? Someone needs to be here in the morning. Why? Jay is expecting an important delivery. I told him to send it here and I'd sign for it. With all due respect, Tilde, fuck Jay's delivery. 
For me, I can really see the struggle Marcus is having, torn between his sense of urgency to get out of there and knowing in his gut that it's all too much for Tilda, really. And he does love her, which makes it all the harder for both of them. She has family and connections, and I'm sure Marcus is aware that what he expects of her is such a huge ask, one he really shouldn't be asking. Just listening to myself talking to you now about this book has reminded me again of how invested I am. I can't actually wait to read the rest of it. I'm really intrigued at that. It's very good. It was. That was a really, really good snippet that you you picked out there. What was the importance of that phone call? Marcus is a little bit dodgy. I got that because he's got all these marijuana plants that he's, he's put into this camper van, mobile home, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So he's obviously using it as a money-making tool. Yeah. Just explain a little bit more because that's really intriguing. Well, Marcus is like, um, I think he's about 30 years old, so he's not a kid. Yeah. But for quite a long time, he has been growing his own product and selling that around his area. He doesn't go any deeper into that lifestyle than he is. If you can have a dealer with ethics, then that's what Marcus is. He won't sell any of the Class A type stuff. It's all magic mushrooms and weed, really, that he sells. Okay. He went to drop off a supply to one of his regular customers. And when he got to his customer's house, he thought he was being followed. So he legged it to get there. And then when he did get there... The people that he thought were following, they did turn up at his house. And I know I told you in the last episode about the little tiny panic room where the guy had built the bookcase in front of his fire escape where you could go like up onto the roof or down to the ground. Marcus hid in there when these people turned up because he thought they were following him and they were looking for him. Okay. But actually, they weren't. They were looking for the guy that actually lived in the apartment. Okay. And from the panic room on the monitors that are inside there, Marcus watched these guys hang his friend to make it look like a suicide. Ooh. Yeah, using right. um, extension cables and the light fittings and okay. both climbing on chairs because there was two of them. And they set the whole thing up to look like a suicide. And then they ransacked the place, don't know at this point what they're looking for or what they were looking for. And then they left. Marcus thinks that they know exactly who he is and that he thinks that they were looking for him. Okay. So it's a it's he's got a misguided conception really of what actually is going on. Well, it's just the first instance really of how somebody you do not know affects your life. So yeah. Marcus now is terrified of people he doesn't know who potentially don't know him. They killed his friend whether they killed him looking for Marcus or killed him because they wanted something else, which is what I'm tempted to believe because they ransacked the apartment afterwards. Mm -hmm. So they were clearly looking for something. It's impacted what Marcus has done with his life. So he's gone home absolutely terrified. When he goes home, there's a van that he thinks is following him that pulls up and parks opposite where he lives. Okay. And it's been there for days. And he's like sitting there waiting for these people to come barging into his to where he lives, to his house, where he's got all of these plants. And so he's gone online and he's bought this motorhome so that he can pack everything he's got into it and run away. 
It is actually really interesting because one of the things that you mentioned at the start of the book was that it was six people yeah. that didn't know each other but had an impact on each other's life. Yeah. And that kind of goes into the, the sort of idea of the six degrees of separation, doesn't it? That Exactly that, yes. That, that all people on average are six or fewer social connections away from each other. But I also found it really interesting that, that the author used sort of ending samsara because I don't know... I, I always end up down internet rabbit holes for, for whatever reason. And I just looked up samsara and I I didn't know. And, and I don't know if you're aware of it, but samsara in Buddhism is the suffering laden consciousness of the cycle of life, death and rebirth. No, actually, I didn't know that. So that's really interesting. I did wonder at the title. I'm like, well, maybe it will become clear the more I read. Yeah. And I don't want to spoil the book for you, but it was just really interesting that somebody had picked a title called Ending Samsara. And in Buddhism, apparently, and I'm, I'm not a, an expert by any means, but apparently to end, end Samsara, you've got to attain Nirvana. It's funny you should say that, actually, because retrospectively, that makes me rethink some of the stuff that I've read about Marcus and the other characters. Okay. Because Marcus, essentially although he's a bit of a badden and he sells drugs and he's on the run and, you know, he's witnessed a murder, he is really conscious about not selling to underage kids, um, only sticking to people that use this app that he uses, not getting his girlfriend involved any more than she absolutely needs to be involved. He worries about her being away from her family. He doesn't have any to worry about, but Tell does. Okay. And... At the point where I'm at at the moment, he'd gone through this state of trying his own magic mushrooms in a bid to find out whether he should actually get out of this business and do right by Tilde and himself, mm -hmm. or whether he should carry on right the way across the country to sell every single product in his van to a guy for 12 grand. Okay. Because he chooses to put Tilde first and get out of the life. I have no idea how that's going to go at this point, whether they'll be successful or whether he'll get back into it or what will happen. But again, there's the knock-on effects. There's this old guy called Oleg. I think that's how you pronounce it. He lives next door to the guy that Marcus sold the drugs to. Okay. <laughs> and he's not very well, I don't think, this old chap. He's a retiree. He's a lovely old fella but he's definitely keeping some sort of secret from his family. And I think he's quite ill because when he sees the greenhouse over the hedge, when he's trimming the hedge, he goes around to see his neighbour and his neighbour automatically thinks, oh God, I'm in trouble now. When actually he says, you know, I want to actually try your product. Okay. <laughs> because he is in quite a lot of pain. So we have, I have yet to find out what he is suffering from, whether it's a, a terminal thing or whether it's just a lifelong thing that he needs some help with and why he can't feel like he needs to talk to his family. So he is linked to Marcus in this way. And also he was bidding on a camper, a motorhome, sorry. So it may have been the same one that Marcus actually bought that Oleg wanted to buy for him and his wife. So there was a link there as well. And then there's an ageing rock musician called Zach. He's another one of the main players in this book heavily into using drugs all of the bad stuff though but again there are links everywhere 
everywhere you look in this story, one is linked to another and they are all impacting each other. It's absolutely fascinating. I'm just about to say that sounds absolutely fascinating. I mean, even the, the, what you've said about it and the little bit of sort of research that I've done yeah. about the, the connection to the sort of Buddhism and the six, six degrees of separation, I'm definitely going to pick that up and read it. It's absolutely worth it. I will read through to the end and possibly I might just, when we do next week's show, give everyone a bit of an update on how it did end before I we crack on should. with the flash fiction because, you know, fully yeah. invested over here. I think you should. I mean, I mean I've mean, i read through the whole of my book. I just romped through it. <laughs> romped through it. You sound like you came from the famous five. <laughs> yeah, I do, don't I? <laughs> Did you have lashings of ginger beer while you were there? No, no, no. <laughs> Crabby's ginger ale, more like. But... <laughs> excellent. I think we've picked a couple of really excellent books this time. I think we have. Well, as much fun as this is, and it really is, what have we got coming up next week, April? We have got our Flash Fiction episode next week, and the writing prompt for that was Under the Bed. And boy, have I got a cracking one for you for next week. <laughs> Excellent. I remember uh, one of your family gatherings, your sister saying something to you about onion-flavoured spiders, Lake. Do you remember that? I do remember that, yes. Yeah. Thank you very much for the reminder. That's absolutely fine. Well, onion-flavoured spider lace can live under a bed. No! <laughs> <laughs> something along that lines, anyway. I'm kind of looking forward to that. Uh, we have had a few in, actually, for the writing prompt under the bed, and we really, really enjoyed reading those. And yeah, we will be reading those out to you next week. That's if Daisy can hack it after the onion-flavoured spider's legs. Not sure that I can. Oh, well, if you're not here, you're not here. You might be hiding under the bed. Yeah. <laughs> not the bed with the onions. No, no, legs no. In. no. And then the week after that, we have got another flash fiction, and that has no writing prompt to it whatsoever, so you can write whatever you like, about whatever you like, try and keep it clean, please, between 500 and 1,000 words. Actually looking forward to that because we're limited by our own imaginations only, so we could end up with all kinds of everything, which would be amazing to read. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. I have worked quite well with these writing prompts because somebody's given me a little box and a little boundary in which to write in. Yeah. This one I'm going to have to, I've got no boundaries, so it's the only boundaries are going to be those that I impose on myself. I suppose so, yeah. I suppose we do like offer a little bit of a spark and then wait for everyone to ignite. Yeah. I do like that. Anyway, that's all coming up next week under the bed. And then the week after, you've got no prompt whatsoever. So get your stuff into submissions at bearbooks.co.uk. Okay. So before we go, a quick reminder that the whole premise of all these flash fiction stories for this season is that Bear Books have challenged ourselves to publish an anthology of the flash fiction stories by the end of this year containing all the stories that we've read out over this season plus some extras that we just couldn't bear to part with and all in the name of charity. We haven't quite decided but we do have a bit of a list that we're going through at the moment with lots of literary and family literacy charities that we've been looking at in the UK. But if anyone has any suggestions that they'd like us to look at as well, we're happy to look at those and take them into consideration before we make the final decision. Yeah, for my personal sort of leaning, I am kind of leaning towards some sort of book charity for children. Yeah. 
I don't think there's anything better than encouraging children to start reading at as young an age as possible because it is something, and we're both testament to that, that stays with you throughout the whole of your life. 100%. I am totally in agreement with that. They are the majority of the ones that we have been looking at just because we feel like it's really close to our hearts, don't we? We do, yes. And it, and it is. Yeah, it is. Anyway, get your thinking caps on, get your under-the-bed submissions in, get your freehand submissions in for the week after, and we will see you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye. If you've read a book by an indie author that you've really enjoyed, email the title across to us at contactus at barebooks.co.uk. And if we read it, we will discuss it on the podcast. Excellent. If you happen to be an indie author and would like us to add your book to our reading list, maybe even come and talk about it on the podcast, send your suggestions to submissions at barebooks.co.uk. And if you fancy a go at writing flash fiction and want the chance to be published in our flash fiction anthology for 2021, pop onto our social media for the full list of writing prompts for this season and also the word count at Bear Books Podcast on Facebook and Instagram or at Bear Books Pod One on Twitter. Thanks to Simon Strong for the musical interludes. You can Instagram him at dadnap.mp3. Stay safe until next time. Thank you.